We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 today, which I'm so excited for this passage. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open it up to Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a short 19 verses. You, you be the judge if that's short. Um, and we will have the passage up on the screen. So if you will, please stand while I read Nehemiah 5. Starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Nehemiah speaking here. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said... We will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over them, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came up to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. 
Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. There is so much to be thankful for. We thank you for fact that you are a God who is distant from us, but has stooped to behold to bring us near. In your holiness, God, you meet those in their affliction. You help those who are poor and those who are needy. And Lord, as we walk in here today, some of us might be battling financial burdens. Lord, some of us might be battling spiritual burdens. And we are a needy people. And we thank you that you are not distant, but you are very a very present help to those who are in trouble. Lord, I pray for those who are downcast. I pray for those who are struggling with family dynamics, for those who have the ravages of sin not only affecting their life, but those that are around them. Lord, I pray that you would bind up their wounds and meet them where they're at. Lord, we thank You for the community. We thank You that we are not merely a people that are called to gather on Sunday and lift up our voices and hear from Your Word, but we are a people to be representatives and ambassadors to the world around us. Lord, thank You for bringing Justin and Jack and Melinda home safely from the Czech Republic. We pray for Beck and Rich in their last couple days there. Would You give them fruitfulness and encouragement and would they be a blessing to others? Thank you for the blessing that this church body is and to send them over there. And we pray just that we would continue to see a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of image bearers that have been redeemed by Christ in that nation that so desperately needs you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us according to it here and now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Okay, so this morning I'm going to ask you a question. Many of you might be bilingual in here, but do you know the Greek word for fear? Do you know it? I bet you do. It's the word phobia. Many people have phobias and they're fearful of something. One of the most common is claustrophobia. Just curious, anybody here struggle with claustrophobia? Yeah, no shame. It's all right. Yeah, a little bit. For me, growing up, I had arachnophobia. And I, th I think it's to blame on that stinking movie from 1990 with Jeff Daniels and John Goodman. I watched it when I was a little kid. And to this day, <sighs> I have to be the man in my house. And when my wife says, kill this spider, I have to kill it. I have to kill that phobia that's within me. Um, there's also dentophobia. Anybody struggle with going to the dentist? Lose a couple teeth. The dentist is your friend after that. Okay, but there's also some silly ones. Or maybe not silly, but they're random and strange, like chiclophobia. Has anybody ever heard of chiclophobia? Landon has. It's the fear of chewing gum. 
the fear of chewing gum, and it's not just the fear of you chewing gum, but being next to somebody who's chewing gum, or even the sight of seeing chewed gum. Pretty strange, right? This one was interesting, nomophobia. Nomophobia. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with a Greek word. Uh, nomo stands for no mobile phone phobia. <laughs> And I know not just many of the youth of our day, but there's probably many of us who have that phobia, the fear of not having our phone with us. Uh, but probably the most prevalent and the co most common is glossophobia. Glossophobia. So does anyone know the Greek word for glossa? Uh, it's, it's the word tongue. Now, <laughs> being in Christian circles, this isn't the fear of tongues. We, we love our charismatic brothers and sisters. Uh, but it's the fear of using your tongue. It's the fear of speaking. It's the fear of public speaking. Glossophobia. Uh, it's estimated some 77% of people struggle with this. Uh, while we have the fear of many things in our day and age, the Christian, we are called to fear God. To fear God. And while there are so many phobias, I think this idea of fearing God is often misunderstood. It's a bit of an archaic saying, and nobody really talks that he or she is a, or he is a God-fearing man, she is a God-fearing woman. And I think it's misunderstood, because in light of that Greek word phobia, we think that fearing God might mean to recoil or to kind of cower from God. But to fear God is to have a reverence. It's to have a respect and awe of who He is and to walk in humility in light of who He is. And so, in our passage this morning, we're going to see what a healthy fear of God does not look like as well as what a healthy fear of God does look like. So if you're just joining us, we've spent the last three weeks in the book of Nehemiah. Now, this book is a historical narrative book, and we have our main character, Nehemiah, who's this cupbearer to the Persian king. And he's sent on a mission from the king to restore the walls around Jerusalem, which have been left in ruins and in rubble. And Nehemiah goes on this mission not just to restore the wall, but to restore the people of God so that the kingdom of God will advance. And we saw in chapter 2 that God's people, when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he rallies them. And they rise up to build. And then last week, we saw that opposition comes once that work began. Opposition from the outside. But it doesn't stop the work. They weren't afraid of this opposition. And they worked with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And they pressed on amidst this opposition. But in today's passage, this morning, we're going to see that there actually is a pause in the work. And there's a significant reason for that. And it's because the opposition comes not from external forces, but from internal. It's from the inside. And the Israelites, they did not walk in the fear of their God, and that's what got them into this ruined situation to begin with that led to the exile. And so this morning, we're going to see from our passage that it is the fear of God is what restores the people of God. The fear of God is what restores the people of God. So to just give you a layout of where we're headed, uh, I don't have three nice and neat points. 
for you all this morning. It's historical narrative, so we're going to walk through the passage together. We're going to see the problem, we're going to see the solution, and then we're going to see the result of what it means to walk in the fear of God. And we'll have some application sprinkled in there at the end in light of it. So, here we go. Starting in verse 1, we see that it's a different setting from verse 4. And I think this is important. Uh, Sorry, from chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, we saw the work continue amidst that outside opposition, but now there's a problem within the wall, specifically among the people, and they cry out. And this outcry is for a variety of reasons. First, we learn in verses 2 and 3 that the situation is a result of a famine in the land, and it's a matter of life and death. They have no food, and because of that, they have resulted to mortgage their field. They have sold off their fields or allowed others to work in it in exchange for the short-term benefit of food to stay alive. Second, what's going on here is the king's tax must continue to be paid. We saw back in chapter 1 and chapter 4 that Artaxerxes, the king of Persia at the time, showed favor to Nehemiah. But the demands to pay him tax still remains. And this probably wasn't a huge deal for the majority of the Jewish people, but it was a massive struggle for a particular class, the poor, there in Jerusalem. Those who had been adversely affected by the famine, and they've sold their fields off, or they just can't work because they're giving themselves to the building of the wall right now. And third, most importantly, what's going on here is this financial burden is so large that this poor group of Jews were forced to sell their children into slavery for the short-term benefit to get food, get grain, and pay the king's tax. Now, slavery was permitted under Jewish law, but it was more of this indentured servitude. It was for a specific period of time, and it was labor-based. Uh, Slaves had a chance to redeem themselves or be redeemed by someone else, and then in year seven, they would go free most of the time. And this is much different from when we hear the word slavery and we think of our country in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, the horrific chattel-based slavery that was race-based, where slaves were legally owned, they were property that was bought and sold and mistreated. That's not the type of slavery that's going on here. But what is going on in our passage is a terrible situation. A famine, king's tax, and the poor have nowhere to turn for help. We see this kind of emotional devastation that comes. You see the dire situation that they're in and kind of this downward spiral. I'll read again from verse 5. It says, Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is a big deal. And it's somewhat veiled in the text, but specifically what's going on here is that the wealthier Jewish people were exploiting the poor Jews. Something that the law of God specifically prohibits amongst His people amongst the community of God. And it became a huge threat 
to the entire building project, and not only that, but the existence of God's people to walk in His ways. I want to show from you from God's law where the problem was. Let's look at uh, Exodus 22.25. It says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. You should not charge interest from him. And then in Leviticus 25, the great Jubilee chapter, it says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve you. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. If you're unfamiliar with the year of Jubilee, it was this uh, year in the Jewish calendar. It happened every 50 years, and there was kind of this releasing, releasing of slaves, this releasing of property, and things got back to normal, how God originally designed them to be. Debts were forgiven. But it's evident in the outcrying of God's people here at the beginning of chapter 5 that this year of Jubilee had been forsaken. It had not been happening. It was forgotten, and the poor were suffering from it. So, that's the lay of the land. How does our friend Nehemiah respond? <laughs> well, in verse 6, it says that he was very angry. Extremely angry, your version might say, when he heard this outcry. And rightly so. The powerful were taking advantage of the weak. And while the Jews who were wealthy might not have thought that they were doing anything bad, or they might have thought that they were helping their brothers and sisters by giving them grain or welcoming them into be a slave in their house and provide for them and their children. What they were doing was not... Red. Oh, still got the, the red light of death. Let's keep going. Okay, so he brings the nobles and officials together, but... One, two. All right, I'm just going to keep going and you'll figure this thing out. Okay, so since the nobles who are responsible don't respond to this, look what Nehemiah does. He calls this great assembly. And I think this is particularly interesting because he actually calls them off the wall. He gets everyone together. And for me, being like a task-oriented person who wants to just like set my mind to something and see it to completion, but right in the middle of a task, I have to stop doing it. Something is so important. What'd you say? Your mic goes out and it's like, what is going on here? Uh, 
<laughs> Task oriented, yes. So uh, forget that idea. Uh, it's a big deal that Nehemiah calls these people off the wall. And if you remember last week in chapter four, when opposition came from the outside, he didn't even stop the building. But now he does because he sees that this is and he must deal with this in the correct way. When everybody's together, look what he mentions. He mentions this idea of slavery. And if you think about Israel's history, Israel, who descended from one man, and as they grew and multiplied, went down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land at that time. And then as they grew and multiplied and became mighty, they actually became slaves. And then God, by his mighty hand, brought them out. Story of the Exodus. We preached through it. It was amazing, glorious, incredible. God brings them out, brings them into the wilderness, and he prepares for them this land, this promised land, and he says, If you will walk in my ways, if you will do what I have called you to do, then this will be your land forever. But if you do not walk in my ways, then there will be curses, not blessings among you. Well, hopefully you know the story. God do not follow God's law. They disregard it. They do not care for God. And so, God being true to himself gives them up. And they are sent into exile. And as they were to be a people of God who were to shine the light of God, reflect him to the nations around them. There we go. These people of God like the nations around them rather than being distinct. And so he sent them to the nations around them. But he was true to his promise that he would give them that land. And we see that they are beginning to come back into the land. This is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. We see a first wave with Zerubbabel come back to build the temple. Then Ezra sent forth to reestablish those worship practices. Finally, we have Nehemiah who's sent to rebuild the wall. And he says, look, people, we have been sold to the nations only to be brought back. And now you sell your brothers to one another. You're taking advantage of one another. And this is not good. And they stand condemned. They're silent in this great assembly. Guilty as charged. Their silence is an admission of guilt here. And Nehemiah, he calls it as it is. This is not good. This is wrong. This must stop. But notice his appeal in verse 9. He says, Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Nehemiah's appeal here is to walk in the fear of God. Walk in the fear of God. Do you know what that means? I mentioned it in the introduction. It's this reverence. It's this humility. It's this awe before our God. Not this cowering that he's going to smite us. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 111, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom closely tied together for the fear of the Lord. Both of these things are related to the fear of God, but it's much deeper.
deeper of that than that. The fear of God does have a healthy understanding of God's displeasure and discipline even towards sin. But for the Christian, most fundamentally, fearing God is this reverent awe, this desire to do His will. And as I was thinking about this this week, I follow the BBC pretty closely. And if you didn't know what's going on in Britain right now, it's kind of a big deal with the Queen dying. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And just to see the reverence and respect that this country showed its monarch, its monarch for 70 years. Hi. This is awkward. Um, I was really struck by how this country cared for this queen, the reverence, the veneration that it showed to her. Now, when we fear God, it's not this respect for the dead. No, our God is a living God. And we are called to respect Him. Okay, well, this is a normal, yep, that's right, this is a normal Sunday for us here at the crossing, am I on, we got this, test one, two, okay, so Nehemiah, he appears, he appeals to his Jewish brothers and sisters that they are to walk in the fear of their God, that they are to know him, respect him, follow in his ways in humble service so that they would be restored to being a light to the nations. But right now, the nations were taunting them, literally bringing scorn and shame among them. So Nehemiah is calling them back, back to God who had done so much to establish them. And now in his faithfulness, he's reestablishing them in the land. So that's our problem. Let's look at the solution. And I really like this solution because Nehemiah is included in it. And as Nehemiah is calling them back to the fear of God, he too did some reflection. We see in verse 10 that our mighty leader, Nehemiah, he himself has some flaws. Maybe a chink in the armor, you could say. In verse 10, it says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. We see that he had been lending money and grain and charging interest. But when he says, let us abandon this, he's included there. It shows how important the community of God's people really is. All along the way here with Nehemiah since chapter 1, He's been doing these righteous deeds. He's been praying. He's been planning. He's been calling God's people together and walking in the fear of his God. But it isn't until these outcries and injustices are sent forth that the examination of his own heart prompts a confession. I think it's important to note here, though, that Nehemiah, there's no mention of his participation in the debt slavery. But even the strongest leaders have flaws. And he shows the humility before the people of God and is included here in the call to repentance. 
This is an important quality in your leadership. But more than that, it's an important quality for all of us. The humility here to confess when we're wrong and then to repent. Not to make excuses, not to blame others, not to just fear, feel sorry. Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy." There's a reverence before God when we fear Him that calls sin how it is. And more than that, not just identifying sin, but by God's enabling grace, turns from it and forsakes it. Nehemiah, including himself, calls the people to repentance. This is the solution. To turn from their sin by returning their property, their money, and their food, including the interest. And now we hear a response from the people. In light of their leader's humility, and they walk in the fear of God, they say, we will restore. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah takes his garment, takes his clothes, and he shakes it out. It's kind of this weird thing, but he would have had pockets in his garments, and everything that was in those pockets would have fallen out on the ground. And he did this in front of the entire people, and he said, If you do not do what you say you are going to do, God is going to shake you out from his people. And it's a curse that he's saying, that if you're not true to your word, God will curse you. And they say, amen. We will do as you promise. And they praise the Lord. They praise Yahweh. And then they follow through on their promise. It's like, wow awesome. People of God are restored. We could just end the book of Nehemiah right there. Unfortunately, we have eight more chapters, (laughs) and Nehemiah gets fired up again, and we'll see how he has some more things to address in the later chapters of the book. But that's also not the end of our passage. We have a little chunk left to go. And as we close out the passage, we see a glimpse in the daily life of Nehemiah and specifically how he walked in the fear of his God. So we see Nehemiah in verse 14 that he's appointed governor of this land of Judah. He is the king's representative or ambassador for 12 years in the land. But he was different from previous governors. The previous governors would place demands on the people to not only pay the king's tax, but also to pay local tax, governor's tax. They had the right and placed these heavy burdens on the people. But Nehemiah, he kept his eyes on the prize. He was sent to rebuild the wall and persevered in it. But we also see in this passage a glimpse of his wealth as governor. It says at his table were 150 people and prepared daily at his expense to feed these folks was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and abundant wine every 10 days. That was a daily portion. And if you think about that, daily for 12 years, I did the math for you, one ox a day for 12 years, that's 4,380 oxen. 
six sheep per day for 12 years, that's over 26,000. Nehemiah, under the Persian king, had massive wealth. Massive wealth. And he provided not only for the nobles and officials and brothers and sisters there that helped him to govern the land, but he was the local dignitary. And as people would come from other nations, pass through Judah, which would be often on their way down to Egypt, he provided for them too. Yet for all this, he says, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He knew his people. He knew what they needed. And he was also focused with the task at hand. He had to complete the wall amidst opposition, both external opposition and internal. But I would say most importantly, we see his motivation at the end of verse 15 in our passage. It says, but I did not do so. That is, he did not lay heavy taxes and demand food because of the fear of God. His motivation was not how he was perceived by Jews or the Persians or anybody else that would come around his kingdom, in his kingdom, there as governor. Not really a kingdom, but his land. His motivation was not purely to complete his mission and rebuild the wall. His motivation was to walk in reverence with his God and restore the people of God and who they were called to be. And we see him do that in his generosity as a governor. His fear of God flowed from the inside of Nehemiah to the outside, to those around him. And it begs the question, how do we get that fear? Where does that fear of God come from? And how might we be able to attain it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've got some disappointing news for you. The fear of God that Nehemiah exhibits here in our passage today, it's not attainable when left to ourselves. But there is good news for us. God is the one who provides the fear of God. It comes directly from himself. I've got a passage here from Jeremiah 32. This would have happened a hundred years before Nehemiah's day, over a hundred years during the Babylonian exile. I'll read it. It says, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of God, the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. A hundred years before, prophesied. Who knows if Nehemiah knew this and wanted it to see it fulfilled in his day? I think he did. I think he did know this. But spoiler alert, it's not fulfilled in Nehemiah's day. One day, another would come to see this fulfilled in his people. 
one of whom Isaiah prophesied that would be the branch of Jesse, one who would delight in the fear of the Lord. It would be God himself who would come to a world full of outcries and injustices. And the Apostle Paul talks of this one man, this prophet who would come. He would come as a humble baby, and he would empty himself as being God, and he would be found in the form of a servant, in the form of a slave. And this baby grew up, and he became obedient in humility, in the fear of his God. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus, who not only is the perfect example for us of what it means to fear God, but also the one who made it possible for us to be able to fear God and do what he calls us to do. Who died the death of a cursed one, the one who was shaken out of the fold of God so that we would never fear the wrath of God. And then, after three days, Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples, ascended into glory after 40 days, and then sent the Holy Spirit as a seal of the covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 32. Jesus changes the Christian from the inside out. And now we have the opportunity to walk in the fear of our God. This is the work. This is the power of God that only He is able to do. And now He can enable us to walk in fear of God. And it begs the question, has He done this in your life? He has done this in my life. He has done this in many people's lives here today. But has He done this in your life? I hope and pray that He is working in your heart, that He is drawing you near, and maybe He has. Maybe He has put the fear of God in your heart, and you're wanting to learn what it means to walk in His ways. The Bible calls this salvation. And I say amen and praise the Lord, and we want to help you walk in His ways, walk in the fear of God, not cowering from Him because of your sin, but delighting in Him because He loves you and cares for you, and sent his son Jesus to die for you. And if you are in Christ, no matter how long you have been walking with him, what does cultivating the fear of God look like in your life today? Growing in your understanding of who he is and how he's designed his world in light of today's passage, I think cultivating a fear of God is evident very much so in how we handle our finances. And I would hope that our church would not be explicitly exploiting the poor for the sake of their own gain, but many of the Jews didn't know that they were doing that. And so my question for you, is there an area that might be a financial um, compromise in your life? Is there something that maybe the Lord is pricking your conscience If you're unsure, that's why God gives us community to help us work through those issues. But if you know what it is, let me encourage you in light of today's passage, confess it to God and turn from it. Forsake it. I think the community of God, the covenant people of God played a massive role in Nehemiah's repentance. And so how's the Christian community currently playing a role in your repentance? 
You know, when we come to faith, we're forgiven of our sin. It's glorious. It's canceled sin. But the vestiges of sin still remain in our daily lives, right? And we struggle and we battle. That's why God has given us community to not only reveal the sin, but to help us walk in repentance. Last month, I was getting uh, lunch with a brother, and I asked him about a particular scenario in his house and he, or in his life, and he began to describe to me the situation where him and a, another Christian brother were at odds with each other for a number of years. And as he was describing the situation, I was very intrigued, and I said, okay, well, I know that you guys are in good standing now, so what happened? He said, well, we got together, and we hashed it out. We worked through it. We owned our sin, and we turned from it. And as he was telling me the story, God pricked my heart. He said, Daniel, you're doing this to another brother. You're currently walking in sin with another brother, and you need to go reconcile with him. And it had been years. This brother was in my wedding. And so I'm going to do that. I'm actually going to do that today. <laughs> but the community of God's people played a massive role in that. And if it wasn't me caring for my brother and getting lunch with him and asking him what happened here, that God wouldn't have put that on my heart in that moment. And so lastly, I think, does the fear of God motivate you to generosity? It's pretty explicit in our text here with Nehemiah. With the wage that you earn, are you viewing it that it is something that is yours or something that is given to you by God? I want to give you just a handful of Scripture passages that have been motivating for me and how I handle my finances. The first is pretty foundational. We're teaching it to our children right now. It's Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, The world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And what that means is that everything, everything is owned by God. You, me, everything in the world. And He has entrusted us with certain things, material blessings, particularly finances and money, and we are to be stewards of that. And we are to use that for His purposes and His glory. And also, in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Some of your translations, if you read in the King James, it might say mammon. Now mammon, back in Jesus' day, is this God that would provide you with physical blessing, financial blessing. And Jesus calls it as it is. You cannot serve God or and mammon. And so, we have made it a desire in our household to serve God with our mammon. Serve God with our money. Now, how do you do that specifically? Well, let me just give you an example. Right now, the economics in our country and in our world, are the, the media would like you to believe that they're in shambles. That inflation is soaring that your Roth IRA is plummeting. And I think the best way to combat those fears and insecurity of your money is through generosity, is through the giving of your funds, even more than what you see dwindling away. 
I've had a number of financial uh, mentors in my life. They've lived on a reverse tithe. Tithe is a 10%. So they live on 10% and they give 90%. There's a a desire and a goal for us someday. Maybe when the kids get out of the house. (laughs) Um, But I've also uh, heard of people that they give 10% on their assets. They, They tally up how much uh, they, they have in assets and they give on 10% of that. And when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's insane. How do you do that? And they say, well, we've done it a, a handful of times, only twice actually. Um, but the liberating feeling of not serving mammon, to serve God with your money from radical generosity. And ladies and gentlemen, the motivation is the gospel. We see that in 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is talking about spiritual blessings here, that we in our sin were helpless, and he met us in our greatest need in his poverty, in his life, and in his death on the cross so that we would become spiritually rich in Him, that God becomes our Father, that we are adopted into His family, that we are given a seat at the table, and we will be His forever. And this is the motivation that the Apostle Paul uses to the Corinthian church for financial generosity. So, let us be a church that is marked by generosity. I would say in some aspects we are. We just sent a team to the Czech Republic and raised eight grand like that. We support many great organizations and missionaries. And this past year, we increased our support to them. And we are giving above the 10%. Let me just speak to the 10% for a moment. That is an Old Testament principle. There's nowhere in the New Testament that requires you to give 10%. But I come from the perspective that Jesus gave us way more than 10%. He gave it all. And so let us start there. It's not a law. It's just a suggestion. So if you have never given before, you can start now and see the great blessing and joy that it is to release and be generous and walk in the fear of your God. And let us be a church that is marked by radical generosity, not only in our finances, but how we use our time and how we love and care for people. And it is that, when we do that, that we will shine the light of the gospel brightly to those around us. That we will be like Israel was supposed to be. That we will be a light to those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great text. I thank you for the goodness and the example that Nehemiah has sent Uh, each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the fear of God, that we would understand more fully what that is. I thank you for the moms group who's walking through the fruitful life this year, a great resource that has a small section in what it looks like to walk in the fear of God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to want to walk and understand in the fear of God and that that would be marked with how we treat one another and how the community of God wants to turn from sin together 
and spur one another on to radical generosity. So thank you for your word here this morning. Father, thank you most for Jesus. May we remember him here. In his name we pray. Amen.